All right, it's uh, time to grab a Bible, turn to Mark 10. Time to grab a Bible and turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, there's probably no point in you being seated. We're just going to jump right into it. Mark chapter 10, we're looking at the end of Mark chapter 10, verses 46 to 52, as we continue in the 41st week of uh, Mark's gospel. Mark 10, 46 to 52, if you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Mark 10, 46 through 52. Let's listen with reverence and joy as Mark writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of our God. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, bless and anoint the reading and proclamation of your word with the presence and power of your Holy Spirit. Would you open our blind and blurry eyes so that we might see Jesus more clearly and love him more fully and trust him more deeply. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. This passage is a pivotal one. It serves as a conclusion to one section of Mark, as well as something of an on-ramp into the next section. And the discerning reader will recall that this is actually not the first time that we've seen Jesus heal a blind man. And uh, we saw him heal another blind man at the beginning of this very series of passages here that began in Mark 8. 22. You may want to put your finger here and look at Mark 8.22 really quickly. That healing and this healing serve as, as bookends, as it were, to this particular section. In Mark 8.22, the section begins with the very same phrase that our passage begins with this morning, just with a different location, and they came to Bethsaida. Our passage this morning begins, and they came to Jericho. There's a hint for you. Mark's trying to show us. These are connected stories. They serve to, to bookend this particular section of passages and series of teachings from Jesus. And of course, when they were in Bethsaida, Jesus healed a blind man, just like he does in our text this morning. And you'll, you'll remember then that when he healed the blind man in Bethsaida, he did so in two stages, didn't he? 
And Jesus healed his hands on, on that unnamed blind man. That he, uh, and, and after Jesus laid his hands on him, he could see, but barely. He said people look like trees walking around. So he's, he's seeing, but, but not clearly, not fully. Things were blurry. The details were fuzzy. And then Jesus laid his hands on him again, and the man recovered his sight fully. And you'll recall from our time in that passage that that served as a, a picture of the disciples' spiritual blindness in sight. And just before that, Jesus had, had fed the 4,000 with just a few loaves of bread, and, and he was afterward in the boat with his disciples, and they were confused about it, and he was asking them, why are you so hard-hearted? Why are you so spiritually blind? And then he heals this blind man in two stages, and then just after that healing, Peter stuns us with a clear, cogent, convictional confession that Jesus is the Christ and Son of God. He, he sees Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God, who's come to bring God's long-promised kingdom. And you go, oh my goodness, Peter, you finally get it. Peter sees, thank the Lord. But as time goes on, Mark 8 goes on, Jesus goes on to foretell His coming, death, and resurrection, and in response... Peter gets up in Jesus' face, and he rebukes him for it. You see, Peter sees Jesus as the Christ, but he doesn't see the redeeming mission and atoning crucifixion as belonging properly to Christ. So he makes one of his famous Petrine blunders. He rebukes the Lord and Master of the universe for his willingness to drink the cup that, that, that his Father has for him. He sees, but he doesn't see clearly. And as the story goes on, Jesus has foretold his own death and resurrection twice more. And on the heels of each of these foretellings, he's given instruction on Christian discipleship and what it looks like for us to pick up our own crosses and follow in the path of our master. And again and again, we've seen the disciples make blunder after blunder, revealing that they see, but they don't see. They can see some things, but others remain lamentably unclear. But then in light of this, our passage is meant to serve as a deep source of encouragement because what we find here is that blindness is actually no, it's not an insurmountable problem for Jesus. He's in the business of healing blind eyes. He's a professional at this kind of thing. He's in the business of taking blind, unqualified beggars who have nothing of worth to offer as citizens of his kingdom and disciples of his way who make blunder after blunder and receiving them and healing them and saving them and adding them to his royal band of disciples. That's what he does here in Mark 10, 46-52. Here we find Jesus calling the blind and opening eyes. He's calling the blind and opening eyes, and, and we see here that he does this in the most unlikely of people, and he does it because he delights in mercy, and that he does it by his word through faith. And first, we see here that Jesus is calling the blind and opening their eyes, and that he does it in the most unlikely people. He does it with the likes of Bartimaeus, who serves as a model for the kind of people Jesus is calling and saving into life with him. So Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way toward the cross. He's headed to Jerusalem to serve his people, to give his life as a ransom for them, to, to die the wretched death that we deserve because of our sin in our place so that we might redeem, be redeemed and ransomed to God. And to get there, Jesus has to go through Jericho. Verse 46, you see, he's 
passing through. He's on his way out of town. He's actually been there for a little bit, but now he's on his way out of town. His disciples are there with him, and there's a large crowd traveling with him as well. And now Jericho is a city about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. It was something of a wealthy city. And what with that and, and with giving alms as being an important part of Jewish piety at that time, it would have been a really good spot for someone begging to just sit at the side of the road. We can assume here that there was likely a group of beggars or lines of beggars on the side of the road with their cloaks laying out on the ground. And someone, you know, the, the idea was when someone was walking by, they'd just drop a few coins on these cloaks. And that was their way of kind of collecting uh, alms and, and, and collecting alms on their cloaks there. That was the way they collected money from those giving. And now this is where we meet this blind beggar. He's on the side of the road. His being on the side of the road, it almost seems to be something of a visual picture of his whole life. All he's being on the outside, his whole life was lived on the margins, but significantly, by the end of this passage, this blind beggar goes from being on the side of the road, on the margin, to joining Jesus on the way. And part of what's so interesting here with that is that Bartimaeus is named. He is na- we hear, we read his name, and that's significant because he's the only person in Mark's gospel who is healed who is named. His name, his name is interesting, his bar means son, and Timaeus was obviously his father. So his name literally means son of Timaeus. But it's interesting, there's a person who's healed here who is also named, because no other person in Mark's gospel who is healed is named, but Bartimaeus is, giving us a hint that this is not just a healing passage like all the others. This is a call to discipleship. Bartimaeus is named because he was called to and recruited into Jesus' band of disciples here. This passage begins with Bartimaeus on the side of the road and ends with him on the road, on the way, with Jesus to Jerusalem. Now, Part of what this passage is showing us then is something of the kind of people that Jesus is calling to be his disciples. And you can see it's totally inconsistent with the values and intuitions of this world, but it's totally consistent with what we've been seeing in Mark's gospel and in the teachings of Jesus. It's totally consistent with the theme of this upside-down kingdom of God we've been seeing, wherein the least is the greatest. The servant is the king. The little child goes in before the rich ruler. The, The sinner is saved while the moral person remains outside, where the blind see and the beggars are royalty. All of these teachings from Jesus that we've been exploring from Jesus over the past several months culminate in this passage wherein this model candidate for salvation and discipleship to Christ is portrayed for us here in this blind man named Bartimaeus. Dan Ortland captures the sentiment well. And gentle and lowly, when he writes that time and time again, it is the morally disgusting, the socially reviled, who do not simply receive Christ's mercy, but to whom Christ most naturally gravitates. And we see that here in blind, begging Bartimaeus, who's an archetype for disciples everywhere. Jesus calls and beckons the unlikely, the unqualified, the helpless, the broken, the weak. Jesus is continually adding people to his kingdom and building his church, and he's doing it with all the wrong people. He's doing it with all the wrong people, people like you and like me. If you're you're here today, 
And you're not so blind as to think that Jesus and his kingdom would be lucky to have you, but you know that as you read this passage that you're looking into a mirror, that Bartimaeus, that that you're Bartimaeus, spiritually blind, broken, begging, well, you're the exact kind of person that Jesus delights in calling. And some of you know, might know something of the the writer of the world's most famous hymn. It's um, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. And he was, maybe you know this, he was a deplorable, depraved man. Throughout his life, his his vileness was evident everywhere he went. His mother was a a godly soul. Um, She she loved him. She prayed for him. She desired for him to be raised in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. She prayed for him to that end. But she died when Newton was only seven and that he lost that that godly influence in his life. At 11 years old, he was sent to sea to work on a ship. To no one's surprise, due to his misbehavior, his vile attitude, he was fired just after a few years. He then joined the Royal Navy, but shortly after deserted. Later he was caught, put in irons, and and flogged due to his desertion. He got punished. From there he got heavily involved in the slave trade and eventually became the captain of a slave ship himself, wherein he he transported, kidnapped, and enslaved Africans to to Britain to be sold. One day, Newton's ship met with a storm that just utterly freaked him out. It's caused him to to fear for his life. And this fear drove him to cry out to God for salvation because he knew that if he died as he was, hell would be his deserved destination. So he cried out to God for mercy and for salvation. He recounted later that he didn't think he was actually truly converted yet there. But he did He did there continue to participate in the slave trade for a time, but he slowly and surely became increasingly disgusted with this practice and with his own participation in it and in his own vileness. And eventually he left it all together. He sensed a call to ministry. He gave the rest of his life to preaching the gospel and working to end the slave trade in Britain. And one of the things that's abundantly clear about Newton is that he knew himself to be a broken, blind beggar in the kingdom of God. He knew himself to be a vile sinner who could only cast himself upon the grace and mercy of Christ or else all was lost. That's why he would go on to pin those those most famous lines, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. That's that's Newton's story. That's Bartimaeus' story. That's our story, all because Jesus is calling all the wrong kind of people to himself. In light of this, some of you probably need to hear, right, this morning, don't let your own unworthiness cause you to doubt Christ's calling on your life. Don't let your own unworthiness cause you to doubt Christ's calling in your life. Don't let your own unworthiness deter you from coming to Him. Don't let your own unworthiness cause you to doubt salvation in him. Don't let your past sins repented of make you think that you are disqualified from being a recipient of his mercy. You may very well look at, 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 the, the, the past, at your past and go, why would Jesus want someone like me? Why would someone like him want someone like me? Perhaps you've done some despicable, depraved things in your life. Maybe you've done despicable, depraved things this week. Perhaps you lack the very characteristics and attributes that this world will tell you makes your life meaningful or makes you significant or wantable. 
But what we find here is that what the world discards and leaves on the side of the road, Jesus often treasures. He came for the lost and the least, for the broken and beggars, for the sinful and sick. And so in all reality, the very things you might think make you unworthy are precisely what qualify you for his kingdom. He's building a kingdom in a church. He's doing it with all the wrong people so you fit right in so long as it's not too far beneath you. Along the same lines, don't doubt Christ's willingness or ability to to call anyone in your life. The crowd here seemed to think that Bartimaeus was something of a, of a, a, a distraction. I mean, the indignity of this man. He's on the margins. He's crying out rather loudly. It had to have been super loud for it to be that annoying. And they tell him to hush. Do you realize that, that we Christians can, can sometimes be something of a barrier to those who would come to Christ? Sometimes we can be a barrier to those who would come to Christ because of our own prejudices, because of our, our, our worldly standards for what would qualify someone for the kingdom of God. You know, notice here in, in Mark 10 that the disciples were shocked when Jesus turned the, rich, the moral rich young ruler away. And that people are rebuking blind Bartimaeus who's seeking Jesus here. They thought the rich young ruler to be a likely candidate for discipleship, but it's this blind beggar who's a distraction, yet it's the beggar who goes in and the wealthy man who walks away. Don't let your prejudices, your your preconceived notions, the kind of people Jesus might call, blur your vision to those he might call standing right in front of you. Sometimes we, we think that people are just beyond the redeeming power of Christ. Sometimes even when we want to see someone called to Christ in our lives, sometimes we, we doubt it's possible because they just seem so unlikely to come. They seem so hardened. They seem so unlikely to change, to be called. So we don't pray. We don't share the gospel. Yet what Jesus shows us here is that no one is beyond the power of his effectual call. Haven't we seen that yet already in Mark's gospel? He's healing blind Bartimaeus here, but he's already raised Jairus' daughter. He's healed the woman with the blood issue. He's delivered the garrison demoniac. He's fed the 4,000. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He's opening blind eyes, unstopping deaf ears. He's breaking hard hearts. He's raising cold, dead corpses. He can call you, he can call me, he can call anyone he wants through the power of his word. And so don't doubt his ability to save your, your child, your parent, your sibling, your coworker, your neighbor, your wh- whoever. Instead, give yourself to praying for them. Give yourself to faithfully planting the seed of God's word in their life. Give yourself to being an instrument of God's grace in their lives and watch Jesus do miracles. Because Jesus is building his church and he's doing, he's doing it with all the wrong people. He's doing it, secondly, because he delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. Here we see the heart of Christ in action. We see that as, as Richard Sibbs once said, that Christ is mercy covered in flesh. Right? If you prick him, he bleeds mercy. He is merciful. You see, he's inwardly gracious, he's inclined, he's pitiable, he's merciful toward this weak and broken man, and he's merciful toward weak and broken sinners like ourselves. He loves us with a tender and compassionate love, and Bartimaeus banks on this, and he's not disappointed. There he is, sitting on the side of the road, 
As Jesus makes his way through and out of town, and this would have been a prime spot for begging. Jericho was a wealthy city. Jewish culture in that day valued giving alms to the poor. So he's, he's got his spot on the side of the road. He's asking for alms. But on this day, verse 47, he hears, he hears a crowd walking by. His, his hearing was probably incredibly sensitive due to his blindness. So he, he hears a, a crowd of people walking by. And someone says excitedly to him, it's Jesus of Nazareth. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's walking by right now with his disciples and with this crowd. And no doubt, he's, he's heard about Jesus. He's heard the stories. He's heard that Jesus is a miracle worker, but more, he's heard that Jesus is a descendant of David and the long-promised Messiah. He's heard that Jesus is the one promised in Isaiah 35 who's come to make all things new and to open blind eyes and to call sinners to the way of holiness. And he believes it. He already has faith in Christ here. And so as he hears Jesus walking by, he raises his voice and he calls out in faith, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And of course, that that title for Jesus is significant, son of David. Ever since 2 Samuel 7, God's people have been awaiting a son of King David to come and to usher in God's forever kingdom, to be their Messiah, to be their ruler to be their savior, to be their Lord, their master. And Bartimaeus knows that Jesus is the one, which is ironic because Mark loves irony here. It's ironic because this man who can't see, sees so clearly. He knows who Jesus is. So he cries out to Jesus for mercy. Have have mercy on me. Look Look on me with pity and compassion. Look on me with favor and generosity that I haven't earned and that I don't deserve. Have mercy on me. The crowd, they're not helpful. They tell him to shut up. Be quiet, you annoying little man. We're on our way to Jerusalem. Jesus is on his way. He's on his way to something important. He doesn't have time for the likes of people on the margins like you. Bartimaeus is not deterred. The passage says here that many rebuked him. And literally the Greek says that he many more cried out. So many rebuked him and then he many more cried out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. What happens next is telling. This cry stops Jesus in his tracks. Verse 49, Jesus stopped The old King James translates it exactly right. It says, Jesus stood still. This cry pierced Jesus' ears and moved his heart and stopped his legs because that's who Jesus is. Jesus is merciful. He, he, He will answer an appeal for mercy. He loves to. Reminds me of this old prayer from Anglican Thomas Cranmer, the 1500s, he says, We do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but in your all-embracing love and mercy, we are not even worthy to gather up the crumbs from under your table, but it is always, always, always your nature to have mercy. It is always your nature to have mercy. It is always his nature to have mercy. Such a pitiable cry. 
always ex- should always expect a merciful response from the Lord Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul can say in Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone means everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls with a heart that knows their need and trusts in Christ and every voice that appeals to his mercy will be met with a merciful reply. And so Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, call him. Now this is awkward. Because the people who had been previously telling him to, to hush are now changing their tune. Right? They'd been rebuking him for crying out with such indignity. It's a marginalized, insignificant beggar on the side of the road. But now the master wants him. So they get kind of buddy-buddy with him. What they say to him is a good word. It's something all of us need to hear this morning. Take heart. Take, be encouraged. Let your heart be cheered. Let courage enter your heart and cheer you. Get up. He's calling you. Take heart. Be encouraged. That's part of what I want for you this morning is that you would hear this and that you would be encouraged, that you would walk away this morning being encouraged and heartened to come to Jesus and to keep coming to Jesus again and again and again. You can and you should because what we find here is that when you come to Jesus, you're met with open arms and a heart of abundant mercy. Take heart because Jesus delights in showing mercy. He delights, he delights in being good to you. He wants to be good to you. He delights in loving you. His heart is so drawn to you, even in your distress, even in your weakness, even in your unworthiness. In fact, those realities draw his heart out to you all the more. And some of you are hearing me say that right now, and you're going, oh my goodness, how many times have you said that in the last year? And I won't apologize, one, because I think it's in the text, not called to proclaim novelties, I'm called to proclaim what's here, but also, I won't apologize for saying it, because I'd venture to say that all of us need reminded of that continually. We need to be reminded that Jesus' heart is for us, that he delights in showing mercy, that he's, he's compassionate toward us, that he loves us. We have a hard time actually believing it. We have a hard time believing that Christ is truly for us, that his heart is truly tender toward us, that he delights in being merciful toward us, that he enjoys loving us and being good to us. You know, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, we find one of the Apostle Paul's wonderful prayers. He has several prayers littered throughout the, his letters in the New Testament if you're ever wondering what you might pray for yourself or for others, these are good prayers. They're spirit-inspired prayers. We find two in Ephesians. One is in Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And there the Apostle Paul, he's, he's right in absolute fire. It's so good. And in the middle of it, he just bursts out in this prayer for the Ephesian church. And he prays for them to have spiritual strength. What is he praying for them to have spiritual strength for? Ephesians 3, 18. He prays that they would have spiritual strength in order to comprehend and to know something of the love of Jesus Christ for them. Right? He, 
He wants them to comprehend and to know something of the extravagant, magnificent love of Christ, which he actually says surpasses all understanding, right? Christ's love verse is so great, he says, it's actually incomprehensible. It's unfathomable. You'll never reach its heights. You'll never fathom its depths. You'll never explore its width and its breadth. Because we think of that hymn, the love of God, the could we with ink the ocean fill, or were the sky of parchment made? Were every tree on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry? And would the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky? The love of God is beyond what we can even fathom or comprehend. It's so great, greater than we can even imagine. And Paul is praying and beckoning us to pray that we might know a little inkling of that great, unfathomable love and grace and mercy of Christ. Speaking from experience, be willing to bet most of us in this room have a hard time believing it and receiving that it's true. It's really hard to believe and arrest in Christ's love and mercy towards us. And I, it's not just from experience. It's scripturally obvious. We have a hard time believing that Christ loves us and is rich in mercy towards us. Why else would this Holy Spirit-inspired prayer be there if we didn't have a, such a, a terribly hard time believing it? Why would it be there unless our unbelieving hearts so often see him as exacting but not merciful? So often see him as as being measured or tempered toward us, but not lavishly merciful. Might see him as being hesitant toward us, but not rich in mercy and love and grace. But Bartimaeus, though blind, sees Jesus so clearly as merciful. And he banks on that reality. And he's not disappointed at all. Because Jesus responds to Bartimaeus and his request precisely in accordance with what he asked for. Jesus is calling, he's opening blind eyes, he's doing it with the most unlikely, he's doing it because he delights in mercy. And lastly, he's doing it by his word through faith. At the encouragement of the crowd, Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, he springs up, I love that imagery, he just springs, he just jumps up, and I mean, you gotta be careful, you can't see, but he's not being careful at all, this man's gonna get hurt. He springs up with vigor and excitement, and he goes to Jesus. These details are significant, because considering the the sort of larger context of this passage, we just spent a few weeks ago some time looking at this rich young ruler, a figure who's the, the photo negative of blind Bartimaeus here. Bartimaeus is obviously poor, marginalized. He has next to nothing, and yet even his little cloak the means through which he would receive the the alms of others, he leaves his little cloak behind in the pursuit of Jesus. The rich young ruler is powerful, he's wealthy, he refuses to get up what he has for the sake of following Jesus. Rich young ruler has a wealth of possessions but possesses no faith. Bartimaeus, on the other hand, has a poverty of possessions, but he possesses faith, which is a really good deal because that's all one really needs in relation to Jesus. And because he comes to Christ in faith, Jesus asks Bartimaeus, when he comes, what do you want me to do for you? And again, this is a significant detail. This is the same question that we saw Jesus ask John and James last week. John and James came to Jesus saying, Christ, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. 
Jesus responded, what do you want me to do for you? Same question. John and James come asking for glory, while Bartimaeus comes asking for mercy. They wanted positions of power and prominence. Bartimaeus just wants to see. So Bartimaeus responds, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now this word translated as rabbi is is not actually the normal word translated as rabbi in the New Testament. It's actually the word rabboni. Rabboni is a word only used twice in the New Testament, once in John 20.16 and once here. In John 20.16, Mary, when She's in the garden. She thinks Jesus is a gardener there in the garden. And then all of a sudden her eyes are open and she sees that it's actually Jesus. And she says, Rabboni. Bartimaeus does the same thing here. Rabboni. He sees. Rabboni, it means rabbi. Rabbi is a a teacher. It, It means rabbi, but it means more. It means, Rabboni means like master rabbi, master teacher, exalted teacher, Ph.D., it meant teacher, but it's, it's even more reverent. Sometimes at that time, the title was even used as a title by which to address God in prayer. It's a worshipful and reverential designation. And as Bartimaeus makes this request with such faith, the Lord responds by answering according to his desire. Verse 52, and Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Word translated as made you well. Here's literally actually the same word that is usually translated as saved in the New Testament. Your faith has saved you. It means to be made whole, to be restored, to be saved. And I can't help but think that there's something of a double meaning here. That indeed Bartimaeus is healed according to his prayer faith, but also that his faith in Christ is what has saved him and brought him into the kingdom and discipleship of Jesus Christ. And part of me is also just baffled by the statement, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you because in a sense, in one sense, it wasn't Bartimaeus' faith that healed him. It wasn't his faith that saved him. It was Jesus. Jesus did it. Jesus healed him and saved him. Jesus said, go your way. He said the word, and then boom, immediately sight is restored, right? It's not as if, you know, Jesus was just walking by, and Bartimaeus was just sitting on the side of the road, and he had faith in his heart. You know, it's, uh, what's the, the cartoon movie about the Exodus story, Moses? If you only believe that Whitney Houston song, you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, it's almost this, if you only believe, this, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not like Bartimaeus just believed that he would be healed and then all of a sudden he's zapped with healing. No, he makes the request to Jesus and Jesus heals him. It's not the presence of his faith that heals him. It's the object of his faith that heals him. And the object of his faith is Christ and his sovereign, powerful, almighty word. I consider this fact. This section of Mark is bookended with the healing of two blind men. And between those two healings, Jesus is preaching his gospel and instructing his people in discipleship. Mark is communicating that the means through which Jesus is opening the eyes of his own is by his word, his teaching. Jesus heals the spiritual blindness of his disciples through his teaching, through his word, through his instruction, through the proclamation of his gospel. It's part of the reason 
why we believe here that it's so important for us to simply preach and teach God's word. We engage here on Sunday mornings. I was just talking to someone about this before service. We engage here on Sunday mornings something called expositional preaching. Expositional, it simply means to to expose. We want to expose God's word to you here. We want God's word to be the content of our preaching and teaching. Expositional preaching then simply takes a biblical text and seeks to explain and proclaim and apply what it says. That's what we're trying to do here. Every week, that's what we're trying to do. And the reason is because the power to change and to open eyes and to save and to sanctify and to grow God's people is found in Jesus Christ alone, and he does it through his word. He's promised to do it through his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the what? The word of Christ. Your transformation, your changing, your opening of the opening of your eyes is not found in any of my good ideas or my gifts or my abilities or my talents or my personality or anything. That would be a tragedy because it wouldn't take place because I'm not much of anything. The power is alone found in God's word. It's found in God's word, used by God's spirit. Jesus is the one who calls, who opens eyes, who changes, who transforms, and the chosen means by which he does it is through his word. However, part of the point of this passage here is that his word must also be believed and received by faith. It's Jesus that that heals Bartimaeus. It's Jesus that sovereignly saves and heals by his word. It's Jesus that opens blind eyes, but he works through the instrumentality of faith. Jesus is the primary cause here, and faith is the instrumental cause here. Jesus gives the gift, but Bartimaeus, his faith is the open hand that receives the gift. Faith is the open-hearted reception of Christ And his word, that's why Jesus can say, your faith has made you well. That's true in one sense. And of course, the scriptures will teach us elsewhere that even faith itself is a gift from God, right? Faith comes from God in the first place, but that's not the emphasis of this passage. The emphasis of this passage this morning is Bartimaeus being set forth as a disciple par excellence. He's being set forth as an example of the kind of faith we're called to have as Christ's disciples. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're not one of Christ's disciples yet. You have yet to truly receive God's word and his gospel by faith. You have yet to truly trust in Christ and to entrust yourself to him like Bartimaeus here. Friend, receive Christ today. Receive his word by faith today. Today is the day of salvation. Your eyes can be opened. Your life can be transformed. Christ is a merciful Savior. Christ is the merciful Savior. He's accomplished our salvation fully in his perfect life, in his vicarious death. His victorious resurrection in him, his forgiveness and new life and everlasting life. Believe that today. Open your eyes today. Let your faith save you today. Get off the side of the road and get in the way of Jesus. Following him, resting in him for the rest of your life. But then this call to, to hear God's word by faith goes to those who have already begun to trust in Christ too. It's the disciples here that that Jesus is saying, I'm gradually opening their eyes through my teaching, through my word. 
Right? Mark is showing us here. He's, he's opening his disciples' eyes through his ongoing preaching and teaching, through the communication of his gospel and his instructions and discipleship. So I would call those of you who do believe to, to continue to hear God's word with faith. One of the items that, that we see so clearly in this passage of Scripture is that even after Christ initially opens our eyes, his word continues to correct our vision. Right? Even when we're initially healed of blindness, our eyes still don't see fully as they ought. Even after we're called and converted, we're not what we should be and certainly not what we will be. There's ongoing work to be done in our lives. There's indwelling sin. There's besetting sin. There's remaining sin. There's continued ignorance. There's all sorts of lacking discernment and wisdom and knowledge. And the means through which Christ is going to purge it from our lives and purify us is his word. His word is the means through which he lovingly exposes our idols. In it, he mercifully confronts our disobedience. He gloriously reveals himself as our consolation and transformation. In it, we find the very means through which Christ changes us. And so I beg of you, be a church, be a people, be a Christian who devotes yourself to this book, to hear it being preached and taught by your pastors, to reading it every day, to studying it and meditating on it, reading good books that teach you more about the Bible, to help you better understand it. Remove whatever obstacles stand in your way to the hearing and, 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 and consumption of this book. If your phone's too much of a distraction or a temptation, set necessary boundaries in place. If your schedule is, is too full, remove things from your schedule. If Netflix is a distraction, get rid of it. If you're struggling to understand it and that discourages you from engaging with it, ask a friend, ask a pastor for help. The Word of God, the teachings of Christ and His prophets and apostles, it's the very means, it's the primary means through which God is going to work in your life to change you and grow you and transform you. This is the book in which we behold our Christ, our Savior. It's the book in which we find the truth of His gospel. It's the book through which He shows us what it means to trust in Him and follow Him, and, and in which He beckons us to do the same as His disciples. It's the Word of Christ that we're to devote ourselves to hearing with faith, and as we devote ourselves to this book by faith, we'll find Jesus in our midst. We'll find, us, we'll find Him calling us to Himself. Find him opening our eyes, calling others to himself and opening their eyes. Even us, who are so unlikely, so unqualified. And it's even us whom he's going to call and change and transform because he delights in mercy as he works by his word through faith. We need to call it now. Let's pray. Father, would you seal this word upon our hearts? Would you give us confidence that even though we are so unlikely, we're all the wrong kind of people, that Jesus delights in mercy and he's calling us by his word. He's calling us forward to receive him and his word by faith. I pray that you would seal that upon our hearts as we come forward now to receive the supper. Would this be to us a, 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 a sign and a seal of the gospel we've heard this morning so that we might be strengthened to walk in it by faith with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.